0: Here we are today, and we're in week four of a series that we've titled Peaks and Valleys. And as you know, if you've been following along with us, that's a series all about the life of King David. And what we've come to at this point or at this juncture in in the journey through the life of King David is uh, one of the most famous episodes in David's life. It's his battle with a giant by the name of Goliath. It's recorded in 1 Samuel 17. And uh, t- there are a number of historians and biblical scholars that when they look at this story, what they conclude is that this is one of the most dramatic narrative accounts in all of Scripture. Um, and in fact, uh, if, you, if you were to survey the history books and, and other world religions, what you'll find is that this story has somehow transcended its biblical origin, and it's become, I I think you've probably heard this, and you might even agree with this, it's actually become the primary metaphor in Western culture, like cultures like ours, to describe improbable victories. People look to this story, and it's like this huge underdog story is is how we interpret it. Um, and, and, And there are accounts of it included in the Hebrew scriptures, the antiquities of the Jews. This story's accounted for in the Quran. It's also accounted for uh, in, in the Bible as well. And what I think David's victory against Goliath um, has ultimately done is it's, it, it basically has made him, to some degree or another, a central figure in three of the five uh, major religions of the world. That's Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. And I think one of the reasons this story resonates so deeply with people and it's so captivating is because it... At its heart, it's not really an underdog story per se, but it does deal with one of the most fundamental aspects of our lives, and that's fear. I'm sure you know this, that in life, we face circumstances that end up challenging our beliefs, shattering our hopes, causing us great loss and grief. I think we face circumstances that make it really hard for us to do the right thing. I think we face circumstances at times that really just highlight how weak and frail and fragile. And vulnerable we are. And I think what this story is going to show us is that, is that how we face those situations and circumstances in life that leave us fearful, they matter. And when we don't process our fears properly, I think here's, here's a couple of options that we have. One of the options is our lives end up being controlled by them. And the other option is we end up being forced in order to keep going in life to deny that our fears even exist. And I think either of those responses to fear are extremely problematic. And here's why. I think suppressing our fears really all it ever does is it leaves us unprepared for life, for the reality that we actually face in this life. And and when we're controlled by our fears, we're just incapacitated to even face life at all at times. And so here's, here's why I think, and you might be Maybe you're here today or you're listening online and and, and you think of the story of David and Goliath as some like cosmic fairy tale or some story that somehow made its way into all these these holy books. But but I want to share something with you because I think that it's relevant for us today. And here's why. I think that the reason that this ancient story of a shepherd boy slaying a giant is relevant to us today is because it's going to offer us an alternative to facing our fears. It doesn't force us to suppress them. It doesn't force us... To, the, to deny them, it's actually going to give us an alternative that will, that will help us, or at least it can help us, develop the courage we need to face anything this life can throw at us. And, and, and one of the most common approaches people use when they try to apply this alleged underdog story to their lives is they take Goliath and, and they prop him up as some personification of our fears. In other words, he represents all the adversity and all the rejection and all the challenge and all the opposition that, that stands in our way in this life. And, and, and the message that that approach sends or the application would be that even though uh, those things are intimidating, even though our circumstances are intimidating, even though our fears are intimidating, really the only way to conquer them is to face them the way that, that David this... Inspiring figure that demonstrates extreme human courage and true grit faces Goliath, and I think, on a surface level, that does sound kind of helpful. But um, I want to offer you that I, I I really think that that approach to this text is kind of out of touch with reality, and here's why. I think you you could probably attest to this to some degree or another. There are giants that we face in this life that we just can't slay. There are situations. Uh, losses that we incur that, frankly, we're not act, like we just don't recover from. Um, I, I turned to a uh, earlier this year. My family went through a season of of great loss. We lost somebody that has been a part of my life for as long as my life has been a thing. And I've never experienced that kind of loss. And what I can tell you about it is, I'm still grieving it. I'm still processing it. And 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 the best way that I can just describe it is when when we lost that that person that we hold near and dear to our heart, the world changed in an instant. And it's never, it's really never going to be the same. And, and so the point I'm got, getting at is some of the adversities we face, we might not overcome. Some of the losses we incur, we might not fully recover from. And I think um, just, in the past, just in the past few days, your news feed has blown up with imagery of people uh, fleeing, Afghanistan, uh, because it's being overtaken by by terrorists and the Taliban, your newsfeed has probably showed you imagery of destruction in Haiti as a result of an earthquake, Uh, wildfires that are breaking loose on the western coast of this country. Those are all situations that uh, unfortunately um, require something that's far stronger, far more enduring, far more powerful than just human courage, human grit, and a little bit of ingenuity. Or strength, And so seeing Goliath as a personification of our fears and seeing D- David as this proverbial example to follow is a mistake. I, and I'm not the only one that feels that way. There's a Hebrew scholar by the name of Robert Alter who's he's given his life to studying Hebrew narrative and helping people like us understand what it means. And this story of David and Goliath, that's what it is. It's Hebrew narrative. And here's, here's what he suggests. He suggests that both David and Goliath offer us ways to deal with our fears. They give us alternative approaches to dealing with our fears. They give us alternative approaches to courage. And, and what, what he would offer is that neither of these approaches is really going to make us fearless, uh, but there's only one approach that can actually give us the courage to face our fears without, without having to deny them or relinquish control of our lives over to them. And so today, we're going to look at this story of David and Goliath, this classic, this ancient story, uh, and we're going to try to answer uh, a question that seems simple, but I think it's pretty profound, and it's this. How can we develop the courage to actually face our fears? And and in order to answer that question, what I want to do is show you the two approaches to courage that I see in 1 Samuel chapter 17. What we're going to find um, is a counterfeit courage, and it masquerades as strength. But it's fragile, and it's vulnerable, and it falls apart under pressure. The other, the other approach to courage we're going to see is it, it might, it's a little difficult to see, actually, because um, it appears to be weak and fragile, but it's the kind of courage that holds up in the face of our most powerful fears. And then lastly, what I want to do is show you how we can actually access or get the courage we need to face our fears so here's what's happening in 1 Samuel 17. Um, first off, it's a record of an event that happened, uh, let's say, more than 3,000 years ago. And this was a time when the kingdom of Israel was at its infancy. King Saul was their first king. He's still on the throne. And now on, along the eastern border of Israel's territory, there was a mountain range. And this mountain range, um, was, was it, basically it played host to ancient cities like Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Hebron. And adjacent to the mountains, there was a coastal plain along the Mediterranean, and uh, that coastal plain is where Tel Aviv is located today. And these mountains and coastal plains, they were connected by a series of valleys and ridges that ran east to west, and historically, hostile armies on the coastal plains would use this region as a strategic pathway to invade Israel. And so that's what's going on right now, and that's what's going on in, um, I'm sorry, in 1 Samuel chapter 17. The, the fiercest enemy of Israel, the Philistines, has taken that pathway all for the purpose of invading Israel. They've made their way to the highland area near Bethlehem, and this is a very strategic location because it, it kind of is this proverbial line that splits the kingdom of Israel in half. And so their intent is, is not just to invade and occupy Israel's territory. They're going to divide and conquer it. And of of course. Word of this travels to King Saul, and so he deploys the army of Israel uh, down the the mountainside to this this region of hills and valleys, and they set up camp in the valley of Elah. The Philistines had set up their camp on the the southern ridge of of this mountain range that, that looks down into the valley, and the Israelites... Had set up camp on the northern ridge. And so at this point in time, the only thing that's separating the, the army of Israel and the Philistine army is this valley. Uh, but all that's about to change. And, and, and uh, it changes when the Philistines decide to break this weeks long standoff or deadlock that they were in. You see, that, that valley was a very strategic uh, piece of geography there because what it did is it prevented opposing armies from attacking each other because in order to launch an attack on your enemy, you had to make your way down the, the mountainside, uh, traverse the valley, and then make your way up the other mountainside, which, which left you completely vulnerable. To your enemy, And neither of those armies were willing to make that move. And so they're deadlocked. But the Philistines break this deadlock when they send their mightiest warrior down the mountainside and into the valley of Elah. And verse 4 tells us a little bit about their mightiest warrior. It says that Goliath wasn't just your average soldier. He wasn't just any soldier. Uh, the language there says that he was a champion. And it's important that we understand what that means because in Hebrew... This literally means the man between. A champion, uh, you could think of a champion as someone who embodies the strength, the power, the courage, the heroism of an entire nation. And in ancient warfare, there was this tradition called single combat. And it it was a a method of settling disputes that kind of allowed you to avoid the bloodshed of an all-out war. And and so what would happen is each nation would, would appoint a champion who would fight as a substitute for their respective people in, a, in an all-out, hand-to-hand combat, to-the-death battle. And this, this might seem on, on some level like a very efficient or effective way to handle conflict, but it comes with huge risk because your odds at victory were only as, as good as your champion. And when Goliath, the, the, the champion of the Philistine army, makes his way to the Valley of Elah to challenge Israel's champion, it sends a, a shockwave of fear that absolutely eradicates uh, and destroys the courage of not just King Saul, but all of Israel. And so what I want to point out is that the way Goliath enters the Valley of Elah and how King Saul and all of Israel respond to it shows us this first approach to courage. And it's a kind of, a, a kind of courage that really appears in my opinion, to be something that it's not. And I'm sure you'd agree that anything that, that isn't what it appears to be is a counterfeit. And so the first thing I want to present you with is that counterfeit courage looks fierce, but it's fragile. And so this picture that we have of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, it, it's fierce. In all the detail there, I, I think it's there to help us understand what counterfeit courage looks like. Go ahead and turn with me to verse 4. Here's what it says. Goliath was nine feet, nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins, and a bronze sword was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations. Why do you come out to line up in battle formation, he asked them. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. And basically that's him saying, I defy your God. I defy every last one of you from your king all the way down to the most vulnerable member of your society. He's, he's basically flexing as hard as he can flex, and he's saying, you got nothing in your arm, army or arsenal that can come against me and, and even come close to yielding victory. And so when Saul and all of Israel heard what Goliath had to say, it says, when Saul of, and all of Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Now, now, now one of the most overwhelming, at least to me as a towering juggernaut of height, one of the most overwhelming aspects of Goliath, obviously, is his height. Uh, The translation I'm using, which is the Holman... um, the, the Holman translation, uh, says that he was nine feet, nine inches tall. This is, th- this is not what all the other records say. And there, there is a little bit of dispute about how tall he actually was. There are a number of of, of uh, historians and biblical theologians that, that say, hey, he wasn't that tall. He was a lot shorter. But what they all agree on is that he towered over the average human being during that time. And so, um, we actually have some things on record in our recent history. The, 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 uh, the most, actually, the tallest human being in recent history is a man by the name of Robert Wadlow. He lived um, from 1918 to, to 1940, and he was a towering 8 feet 11 inches tall. So, so 9 foot 9 isn't really that outside of the question. This, this man was huge. Um, The the record I'm looking at says that Goliath was about a foot taller than than Robert Wadlow. But he's not just nine feet nine. He's kind of like the predecessor to Iron Man, only he's Bronze Man. Like this guy is huge and he's fully clad with bronze from head to toe. He looks invincible. And just to give you a little bit more context, the average Israel, and this is so encouraging to me, The average Israelite soldier, you know how tall they were? About five feet tall. I'm so much taller than that. Um, Anyways, and here's what they were wearing, basic clothes. They weren't wearing armor. They were five foot tall, wearing basic clothing into battle. And so in the eyes of anyone who had ever seen Goliath, he just looks invincible. He looks unbeatable. And so there's all this detail about Goliath's size and what he's wearing into this battle and all his weaponry and all his armor. And just just so we're on the same page, that is something that is highly uncommon in Hebrew narrative. Typically, uh, people writing Hebrew narrative, at least the ones we find in the Bible, don't take the time to describe what their enemies look like or what they were wearing. They make a quick mention of them and then basically talk about how God swiftly eliminated them. But there's a reason for this exceptional attention to detail. You see, Goliath's size and his weaponry so, show us something about a cultural paradigm when it comes to facing your fear and having courage. Goliath, really what he is, is he's, he's a hulking monument to the Philistines' beliefs about power and courage. He, he looks fierce, but underneath of all that, he's extremely fragile. And here's why. He's built his sense of invulnerability around the way his culture validates him. He's built it around his strength. He's built it around his ability. He's built it around his assets, like his armor and his shield uh, and his sword and his spear. He's also built it around all of his past success. And, And it's all of these things together that make him feel invulnerable. But what he doesn't realize is that the moment we begin to feel invulnerable, the moment we begin to feel as if we can't lose, the moment we feel like we're unbeatable, that's the moment we, come, we become the most vulnerable. You see, our, our weaknesses aren't what make us vulnerable. Being blind to them is what makes us vulnerable. Blindness Blindness to our vulnerabilities is the most vulnerable place to be, and that's where Goliath is. And this isn't a mindset that's unique to Goliath or ancient cultures. Um, and, and I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you probably don't wake up and, like, throw on your armor and grab your sword and, and grab your spear um, and carry around all this heavy equipment so that you can feel invulnerable. We, we, we do it a little differently than that. Um, we, we build our sense of security around our careers or our affluence, our wealth. Uh, we build it around our health. We, we, we build it around um, this idea that, that making all the right choices and having all the right things in place can lead to um, the, the places that we want to end up in life. And when all those things are in place, what ends up happening is, is we can easily, if we're not careful, we'll easily just lose sight of how vulnerable we really are. And, and that's, nothing, that's no different than Goliath you know, trudging down into the, the valley of Elah and saying, you think you can beat me? Is, is what he's saying. He's saying, look at me. I, I can't lose. I've got the size. I've got the strength. I've got the assets. I've got the ability. I've got everything my culture says gives me courage and makes me fearless. I've got everything my culture says makes me invulnerable. And, and I'm just, I'm just going to share this with you, because and, and this is my opinion. Um, I think courage And and I do think you can see this in the text. I think courage built on this idea of self-assurance or self-confidence. Here's why I think it's fragile. I think it's fragile because it ends up just filling us with arrogance and pride. And what arrogance and pride do is they blind us to our vulnerabilities. And so Goliath has, has no ability to see that the things he turns to for courage are the very things that make him fragile because they prevent him from seeing his own vulnerability. He's out of touch with his weakness. He's out of touch with his mortality. And what he says in verse 10, when he says, I defy the ranks of Israel today, this is his biggest vulnerability. He's completely out of touch with his need for God. And so ultimately, Goliath is out of touch with reality. And I'll just offer this to you the same way I've been offering it to myself all week. Until we have an awareness of our own vulnerability we're out of touch with reality. You see, Goliath's courage is a counterfeit. It looks fierce, but it's fragile. And here's why it's fragile. It's completely blinded him to his own vulnerability. And so for 40 days, he, he marches down to the Valley of Elah, and, and every time he, he, he does the same thing, and he demands that Israel produce a champion that he's going to go toe-to-toe with, and every time it sends this paralyzing shockwave of fear through the kingdom of Israel, until a shepherd boy from Bethlehem, who's too young to be enlisted in the army, and he's too small for anyone to want him to enlist anyway, shows up and he hears Goliath's taunting roar. And how he responds offers us an alternate approach to how to face our fears or how to have courage in the face of our fears. And what it shows us is that true courage looks fragile, but it's fierce. Turn with me to verse 22. Here's what it says. It says, When David arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words. And here's the key, which David heard. He hadn't heard these words up until this point. And when all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated. They retreated from him terrified. Previously... An Israelite man had declared, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the household of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. I just want to like add a little side note here. Can can you see how fear will drive you to do the craziest things like give your daughter away to whoever shows up? All because, he's, all because he's terrified of Goliath. But, 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 but that's not the point here. David, David could see everything that everyone else could see. He saw how huge he was, how terrifying he looked. He saw his armor. He saw his arsenal. He could see the violence in his eyes. He could hear the terror in his voice. He could see everyone from King Saul all the way down the ranks paralyzed in fear. But in the face of all that, David responds differently than anyone else. And what David says in verse 26 it's going to start to give us a glimpse into his approach to dealing with fear. And it's, it's, it's far different than anyone else's. It's different than Goliath's. It's different than Saul's. It's different than the entire army of Israel. It's different than the entire nation of Israel at this point. And also, I just want to point out, this is the first time that David actually speaks uh, in the Bible. This is the first recorded thing that he says in all of Scripture. And what he says, ultimately, it brings an entirely new perspective on how to handle fear. Here's what he says in verse 26. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so, so for, mo- for more than a month, the Israelites, they've been operating under this assumption that Goliath is invulnerable, that he's invincible, that he's unbeatable. And in these, these two questions that David asks challenge that assumption. And they also offer a perspective that was completely missing from the conversation up to this point. See, see, according to David, Goliath wasn't just taunting the army of Israel. Goliath was taunting the God of Israel. And according to David, there, there really is no one big enough or outfitted with enough weaponry or powerful enough to defy the God of Israel and, and, and live to tell the tale. And so these two questions, what they ultimately highlight is how out of touch with reality Goliath was, right? And, 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 and because he was, he was out of touch with reality, the message he's sending every time he stands in the Valley of Elah and says what he says is just leading everyone who's listening to him to be more and more out of touch rea- with reality. And I think there's a principle there for us. If we, if we If we posture ourselves to listen to people who are out of touch with reality, eventually we just lose touch with reality ourselves. And so what David is trying to do here is bring his people back to the reality that God is a God of justice and that he's unstoppable and that in his plight to execute justice, nothing's going to stand in God's way. And he's going to bring forth justice eventually, period. And, and, and David is saying, yes, we're terrified, and yes, what's standing in front of us seems invincible, and yes, you're shaking in your boots, and your knees are, are clacking together, and you're, you're, you're scared out of your mind, but don't let your fear allow you to forget, or don't let it debilitate you. Don't let it take you to a place where you lose sight of the fact that God identifies so intimately and closely with his people that he's never indifferent towards how they're treated, He's a God of justice. And Goliath's self-confidence and his self-assurance might be intimidating, but that's exactly what makes him vulnerable and fragile because it's led him to the belief that he somehow outsizes God, that he's outgrown his need for God. And so David, is what he's pointing at and asking these two questions is that the things that gave Goliath a sense of strength are the very things that make him weak. And so Saul catches wind of this conversation David's having, and uh, he sends for him. And in verse 2, we hear what David says to Saul. He says, don't let anyone be discouraged by Goliath. And I think on a surface level, this sounds a lot like youthful idealism. Um, This sounds like, you know, your kid coming up to you and trying to tell you how life is supposed to be lived, how things are way more simple than they seem. And uh, anyways, uh, it, it sounds like youthful idealism, but it's not. It's a different approach to courage. David's not offer, operating from a place of self-assurance or self-confidence. And, and, and what he's not doing is suppressing his fears by, like, turning his eyes away from them. And he's not saying to Saul, hey, your fear's irrational. Just get over it and move on and, and face the giants in your life. Um, and, and, and just a little side note on suppressing anything, it's always problematic And I think it's problematic because anytime you suppress something that's not intended to be suppressed, you end up just losing touch with reality. The moment you suppress your fears and you convince yourself that you can face anything is the moment you stop being realistic. And so when David says, don't be discouraged by Goliath, other translations put it a little differently. They say, let no man's heart fail. What he's saying is, hey, Saul, You're being controlled by your fear and it's not leading you to a place of health. Being controlled by our fears ends up preventing us from doing the right thing, from addressing the things in our lives that we know we need to address. It prevents us from confronting the things that we know we need to confront. It prevents us from doing, facing the things that we actually need to face. And, and, and I get it, and, I, and David got it too. I know that some of the things that we need to face in our own lives are terrifying. And the reason they're so terrifying is because they expose our weaknesses and make us feel so vulnerable. But true courage, here's what it doesn't do. It doesn't make you feel invulnerable. What it does is it allows you to fully embrace your vulnerability and this is nothing like, um, I feel like there's a faith over fear cliche that's kind of moving, moving through our culture. This is nothing like that. Faith isn't the absence of fear. Faith is, is a mechanism that when you let it, God can use it to move you to deeper levels of faith. And, and, and just so we're clear on how I, I see this, um, there, there's no amount of faith that will eliminate fear in our lives. And if you want a case study for that, you can look at the life of Jesus. His life is a perfect case study for this. He's the most faithful person to ever live, and he experiences intense fear. Like he's the author and perfecter of our faith, is what the Bible calls him, yet he experiences a fear that he cannot shake, a fear that's tangible, a fear that in the Garden of Gethsemane has him sweating bullets. Right? Some of the things that he faced were terrible. And they made him fearful. But what he never did is allow fear to have the final say in his life. And that's where true courage is found. Look, we, we, we need fear in our lives. At least I do. And here's why. When I lose, tu- when I lose touch with, with my fears, I, ultimately I lose touch with reality. And when, when that ends up happening, I, I take risks I shouldn't take. I make decisions I, I regret. And I end up trying to find a sense of invulnerability or security in things that eventually just fall apart. Maybe you can relate to that. And so, so, but the point that I'm driving at here is, and, and this is what I think David is saying to Saul, he's saying don't let fear have the ultimate say in your life. Confronting your fears can make you feel weak and vulnerable, It can make you feel exposed. But if you allow them to drive you to a deeper dependence on God, you can develop the courage to face anything. And here's what David says next. He says... I will go and fight this Philistine. And the response he gets, here's what what Saul says in response. You can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was young. And all this is is another way of saying you don't fit the cultural narrative. You don't fit the mold. You don't embody what constitutes power or strength or courage. You're not the hero we need. And Saul here is listing David's vulnerabilities. He's listing his age and his lack of experience, as if David somehow had missed that message from his dad and everyone else in his family. Like that's a message he had heard for the entirety of his life. And so it's not a new message to David. And so when, when, David, when David responds on a surface level, it almost sounds like he's trying to justify himself because what he does is he lists his credentials and he talks about he's, how he's, he's literally slayed lions and bears, which is absolutely crazy to me that, that David, this, this youngster from Bethlehem, this shepherd boy, had a track record of felling bears and lions. And now he's talking about it, and it seems like he's just using it the same way we use all the cool stories in our lives to justify ourselves, to make ourselves feel significant. But that's not what he's doing. He's not leaning on past success to predict future success. And, and here's why, that's such a dangerous game to play. Is it not, especially in a death match? Like he, he's signing up for a death match, we get that right? So like his resume really doesn't matter because here's the only prerequisite you need to sign up for a death match. You have to be alive, like that's it and willing to do something crazy, and so there was no real benefit in in david' signing up for this or, or presenting his his resume and, and, the, and the problem with a with a death match is the next loss is it only takes one and it 's always your last loss when it comes to single combat and so his resume doesn 't really mean a whole lot um, even if even if he thought it did, but david is not he 's not resting his hope on his resume or his past experience when he says The Lord who rescued me, and this is in verse 37, from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David is simply pointing to God's past faithfulness, and he's saying, God is just as alive now as he was then. He's just as faithful now as he was then. And if we follow him into the valley of our fears, he'll faithfully give us the courage to face them. Look, David's courage is not based on skill or audacity. It's based on God's faithfulness. And ultimately what David is trying to get across is, if I win this battle, so if David wins this battle, it won't be because of his true grit. It'll be because he knows the true God. And so after hearing David out, Saul makes what, I, this, this literally, in my mind, could be uh, the biggest military gamble in the history of warfare. He accepts David's offer, right? So he, he, like, ostracizes him and talks about how weak and frail he is. And then he's like, oh, okay, cool. Go for it. He signs off on it, um, and he places the, this is what he's doing. He's placing the fate of the entire kingdom of Israel in the hands of a shepherd boy, he accepts David's offer, he commissions him, he outfits him in his personal military gear, gives him his bronze helmet, his armor, uh, his sword, and, and David does the fit test and, and concludes this, this ain't going to work. Saul, and he says, hey, I'm a, I'm a shepherd, I'm not a soldier. He's not used to gear like this. It's heavy, it's cumbersome, and it really doesn't play to his strengths as a shepherd. And so verse 40 tells us what David, David chooses to do instead of taking Saul's armor. It says, instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi. And all that is is a dry wi- riverbed. And he put them in his pouch, his shepherd's pouch. And then, with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. And so, um, it, it'd be easy to, 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 like, take a number of angles here when, with regards to David's refusal of Saul's armor and sword. But this isn't, this isn't David moving in faith and denying his fear. Um, What he's doing is he's actively moving towards his fear in faith. And and he's not empty-handed. Like, I hope you don't see David as empty-handed. And if you do, I'm going to show you that he's not. He's not entering this fight unarmed. Uh, What he's doing is he's offering us a radical alternative, and he's challenging our assumptions about courage and how to face our fears. So instead of bringing the weapons of the world to this fight, he chooses the tools of a shepherd. He's got a shepherd's crook. He's got a sling, and he's got some stones. Um, David chooses the tools of a shepherd. Now, now, Goliath, you know, is wielding the weapons of a warrior. And in, in ancient warfare, I think this is important for us to consider. In ancient warfare, there were three kinds of warriors. You had cavalrymen who rode around on horseback, or they were in horse-drawn chariots. Uh, you also had heavy infantrymen. These were foot soldiers. They uh, typically have swords and shields, and, and their, whole, their whole battle motif or MO was hand-to-hand combat. And then lastly, there were infantrymen who were, or, I'm sorry, um, artillerymen. Who, these were like archers and slingers, and what they would do is they would attack enemy armies from a distance at very strategic locations. And historical records of combat that talk about artillerymen really highlight them as one of the most decisive factors in warfare. And so slingers, who were artillerymen, they were equipped with these leather pouches that had two long cords attached to it. and this is the weapon David has. It's, it's, a, it's a sling, and they'd put a projectile in it, just like the stones that David gathered, and they'd whirl it around, kind of like this, which I feel weird doing. and they'd, they'd let it go. Um, with one hand, and they'd hurl these projectiles toward their target. They, they could hurl these things at speeds of up to 150 miles per hour. Um, I, 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 uh, I played college baseball, and I think the fastest projectile I ever saw was traveling at about 95 miles per hour. This is far faster than that. And not only did they hurl them fast, they could hit a target with deadly accuracy at up to 200 Yards And so although David's not formally trained, he's a slinger, and he's, eclipped, he's equipped with a sling. And, and, and what we need to understand here is this isn't the same as a slingshot. This, this isn't the toy that you had as a kid that, you know, you tried to shoot the neighbor's cat with. This is a deadly, this is a deadly weapon. And so David has this faith in an incredible God, but he's entering this fight with an incredibly devastating weapon And he knows how to use it. He's not an inexperienced shepherd boy. Uh, He's not the inexperienced shepherd boy that he seems to be. He's equipped with with the true courage that looks, it appears to be fragile, but it's fierce enough to allow him to face anything. Go ahead and pick up with me in verse 41. And and this is where this idea of counterfeit courage, it's where the courage of Goliath um, comes head to head with the true courage of David and and these, 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 these types of courage collide. And uh, here's what it says in verse 41. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. I think that's so funny. I don't know why I think that's funny, but I think that sounds funny reading it. He's despising him because he's young and he's good looking. Mm. I think that says a whole lot about Goliath. My man had to be as ugly as they come. At any rate... (laughs) Here's what, he says. Here's what he says to David. Am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give, you your, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. Now, now when, when David made his way down the mountainside to approach Goliath, he, he's armed with a weapon that's capable of delivering a fatal blow at a great distance. Uh, what we know about Goliath is he's an experienced warrior. He would have known this. He's he's no foreigner to artillerymen. He's no former. He's no he's no foreigner to archers and slingers. He would have known that David was wielding a deadly weapon. The problem is he was so blinded to his vulnerab- vulnerability he couldn't see the possibility of defeat. And so if the it, it, if the courage you and I have, if the courage we have is coming from a place of fearlessness like it was for Goliath. If we're facing challenging circumstances and we're fearless because of our self-confidence or our self-assurance, I just want to say we're not operating with courage in those scenarios. That might be some psychological state that we've worked ourselves into, but it's not courage. It's a counterfeit that really only ever causes you to lose touch with reality just like Goliath had. And so Goliath, blinded by overconfidence, he starts attacking um, David psychologically. And here's what he, he he ends up taunting his weapons, uh, tells him, why are you bringing a stick to a sword fight, basically? He curses curses his God, curses his whole entire nation. And then he threatens to kill David and dishonor his corpse and deny him an honorable burial. That's exactly what he says to David. And none of this, none of this daunts David. So, So undaunted, David shows up And basically what he's showing us is he's not entering this battle with any degree of ignorance whatsoever. He's not operating with a false sense of courage. He's fully aware of what he's up against. He's fully aware of his own vulnerability. Uh, he's, He's aware of Goliath's arsenal and how deadly it is. But more importantly, he's fully aware of the most powerful weapon in his arsenal, the power and presence of the living God. Listen to what David says. This highlights how, how aware he is of the situation that he's getting into. He says, you come, at me, you come against me with a dagger, spear, and sword, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel's armies. You have defiled him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, cut your head off, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that, the is, that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. So, so for David, this isn't just a battle. This isn't just, you know, a 1v1 a, a fight to the death match. There's a deeper purpose at work. And, and the deeper purpose at work, according to David, is the divine Justice of God. See, Goliath had defied the God of Israel, and he's a God who identifies so intimately with his people that he's never indifferent toward how his people are treated. And when David says, All the world will know that Israel has a God, and when he says that the battle is the Lord's, he's showing us that Goliath isn't going to die in vain. This, This isn't some show that's being put on to prove you know amount one degree of strength over another the Goliath isn't going to die in vain instead his death is going to reveal God's power and reality to people all over the world victory over the injustice of Goliath would mean justice for people everywhere and that victory isn't David's it's God's now when Goliath makes his move to attack David he looks fierce but he's fragile He's outfitted with advanced weaponry, but he only has one play, crushing his enemies in hand-to-hand combat. This is how he wins. This is how he validates his strength. This is how he feels significant. And this is actually what makes him most vulnerable. See, everyone was expecting David to enter this fight with Goliath in hand-to-hand combat mode, in close range, but David isn't a soldier. He's a shepherd. He had no intent of engaging in hand-to-hand combat, and, and also he's not operating from some obtuse need to prove anything. What he's doing is he's protecting God's people the same way he was protecting his flock against lions and bears. And the moment he sensed any degree of threat, from Goliath. He responded in a way that caught everyone absolutely off guard. You see, Goliath's courage allowed him to see David's vulnerabilities, but it blinded him to his own. And that's what made him so weak, and that's what made him so fragile. You see, true courage doesn't blind you to your vulnerabilities; it actually helps you see them so clearly that you can begin to deal with your vulnerabilities. And see, it's it's David's courage that made him fully aware of his vulnerability. He knew He didn't stand a chance in hand-to-hand combat against Goliath. But he also knew that Goliath didn't stand a chance against his sling, his stone, and his God. Pick up with me in verse 49. It says that David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And then it says, even though David had no sword, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. <laughs> this to me is kind of like the equivalent of of a of a, like a heavyweight bout that's about to have it happen. It's like months out. That's the standoff. There's all kinds of hype. There's all kinds of energy around it. And then the guy gets TKO'd in the first like ten seconds of the fight that's literally what happens here and so david david's David's victory over Goliath, what it does is it absolutely flips the script the the terror that paralyzed the Israelites is gone it's, it's completely evaporated. the Philistine army has fled in fear their champion everything that they looked to for strength, for significance, for courage to deal with their fears was dead and it sent their entire nation. Into, into a panic. And so what's, what's really evident in this story is that how we approach our fears matters. And I think what, what, what's also evident is that self-assurance and self-confidence, really, they're just terrible counterfeits for true courage. The courage of Goliath and the Philistines was only ever present when they were facing a threat that, that made them feel invulnerable. And, and the courage of Saul and all of the Israelites really was no different. The moment, the moment that King Saul's vulnerability was revealed and the moment that the, the army of Israel felt vulnerable in the presence of this colossal giant named Goliath was the moment that their courage absolutely disappeared. And so th- here's a reality that I think exists in this story. I think, I think there's a risky thing that we can do when we approach a story like this where we insert ourselves into this story, and we say, all we got to do is be like David, and we identify with David. But I think if we are going to accurately understand what this story is all about, um, and we inserted ourselves into this narrative, the only place we fit is amongst the army of Israel. And we're camped out on the northern ridge that overlooks the valley of elah and we're paralyzed by fear and we know there's nothing that we can do about it and we know that our lives demand a champion a substitute a savior that's going to enter the valley and face this enemy that we are powerless to defeat you see when when david faced goliath he wasn't acting as an example for us to emulate he was fighting as a champion a man between. He was literally the legal representation of the entire nation of Israel. And here's what that meant. If he won, the entire nation of Israel won. If he lost, the entire nation of Israel lost. And so David is not fighting for them. He's literally fighting as them. And it's also important to note that he's not fighting from a place of strength and self-confidence and self-assurance. He's actually fighting from a place of of weakness. And understanding this, I think, is the key to understanding how to find the courage to face anything. You see, David's courage came from his weakness and his vulnerability, not his strength and his self-assurance. From the start, he's the youngest of eight sons. He's the run of the family. He's the brunt of all the ridicule. His own father doesn't even think that he's going to amount to anything. And what no one knew is that God was working through all that rejection and all that ridicule and it was because he was so young and it was because he was so weak, it was because he didn't fit the expectations of his family or the expectations of his culture that he learns as a shepherd boy all the things that he, would need, that he would need to know in order to be king. He learns how to use a sling. He learns how to protect his flock from predators. He learns how to understand and embrace his vulnerabilities instead of being controlled by them or being forced to deny them. And it's through his weakness that he saves the people of Israel. David's not an example for us to emulate. David's life is evidence for how God deals with our fears. David's life shows us, at least this is what I think it shows us, it shows us that God doesn't give fearful people an example to follow. He gives them a hero, a champion, a substitute, a savior. And, and, And if we fast forward from this story all the way to Hebrews 11 and 12, there's a place where the writer includes the names of all these alleged heroes of the faith, people that we would point to and and, and rightly call heroes of the faith, people like Noah and Abraham and Moses and Joseph and Jacob, people like Rahab and people like David. And he says, remember. He says, remember how they had the courage to face things like oppression and enslavement and abandonment and exile and terrible loss and imprisonment and rejection and some of the worst atrocities that we could imagine the writer of hebrews says remember their courage but keep your eyes fixed on jesus the author and perfecter of our faith and the greek word there for author here's here's what it is it's archagos and here's what it means it means the champion not a champion the champion and so I, I want to explain to you, I want to help you understand what that means as we wrap up today and uh, as the worship team comes back up today. And so what, what all this really means is that David is not an example for us to emulate. David is, <laughs> David is, his life serves as evidence for us to look at, but what we're called to do is keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the champion. Fixing your eyes on Jesus it's how you can have the courage to face, to face absolutely anything. You see, David entered the valley of Elah, and he risked his life to save his people from physical death. But Jesus entered the valley of the shadow of death, and he took the punishment of death that we deserved to rescue us from eternal death. He laid down his life. He was tortured. He was executed. And through weakness, he actually defeated our greatest enemy and confronted our ultimate fear. And our ultimate fear, I'm sure you have fears that you would point to and say, that's my greatest fear, but I just wanna offer you this as what I think is as a human being, it's our ultimate fear. if we really really get down to to the nuts and bolts of of why we're here. Our ultimate fear isn't the loss of money or the loss of success or the loss of relationships. All of those things are valid, legitimate fears, but our ultimate fear is being cut off completely and utterly from the presence of a holy God. That's the ultimate poverty. That's the ultimate loneliness. That's the ultimate death is, is alienation from God. And on the cross, Here's what Jesus endured. He endured our ultimate fear so that anyone who trusts him can be freed from all fear. You see, true courage is not the absence of fear. It's the assurance that if we abide in Jesus, our deepest fears are completely resolved. And the degree to which we can see Jesus taking the punishment we deserve and enduring ultimate rejection and ultimate loss and ultimate death and ultimate fear is the degree to which we will have the courage to face our fears um, i mentioned earlier that uh, that you know our news feeds kind of blew up with a number of things this past this past week uh, news of things that are unfolding in afghanistan wildfires in california uh, earthquakes in haiti um, a resurgence of covid where in, in, some, in some cases there are hospitals that are literally uh, running out of their oxygen supply and they're not sure how they're going to care for the people that they have already um, in-house and they're not sure how to create space for future um, patients that are going to need a bed to get well on. And so um, th- there's all those things that are unfolding uh, big picture and globally and maybe they, they don't impact us personally, but there are people also at our church that are facing some of the most challenging, most fearful circumstances, and situations. And so what I want, what, what I just want to invite you to do is see David. See David as an example, but fix your eyes on Jesus. And there's one thing that, um, that I want to offer you before I step down from, from this stage today, and it's, it's, uh, it's written in Isaiah 40. It's verses 28 through 31. And here, here, here's what it says, and I want you to just let this sink in. Um, allow this to impact you uh, allow this to become a reality or ask God to make this a reality in your life. Here's what it says. It says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. What that really means is there's nothing outside of his scope or his gaze. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He He's capable of doing the unthinkable, the unfathomable in the face of Troubling circumstances. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. I don't know what you're facing Personally, I don't know what you're fearful of personally. I don't know what has grabbed your attention personally. But what I do know, based on the life of David and based on what we see in Isaiah chapter 40, is that there is a God who is utterly committed to you. He's so intimately connected to you that he is not indifferent to your fears. He's not indifferent to the way that you're treated. And if you let him, he will take your fears and translate them to a deeper level of faith, one that you haven't even imagined. Let me go ahead and pray for us. God, um, we just wanna be people that actually believe what you've told us. We wanna be people who are convinced that uh, you don't faint and you don't grow weary, not in the face of the most troubling circumstances. We wanna be people who believe that your understanding is unsearchable, and we wanna be people who don't just believe that you give power to the faint. We're faint, God, and we need your power, and we're asking you to give it to us. We're asking you, as people who lack might, that you would increase our strength, God, that you would give us everything that we need to face the fears that we're encountering in our lives, and God, that we would do it in a way um, that shows the world that there is a God of heaven. He's alive, he's well, and he's capable of doing anything. In your holy name, amen.